the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for Simple Truth Moments, hosted by Reverend Earl Clampett of Simple Truth Ministries, a weekly show dedicated to excavating God's Simple Truth Moments. Good morning, San Diego Saints. I am your host, Reverend Earl Clampett. Welcome to Simple Truth Moments, a unique type of broadcast with the goal to prepare the body of Christ for the momentous times in which we find ourselves. This program serves as a kingdom training platform challenging church tradition, not with hostility, but with a view to assess the biblical validity of what is taught and lived. So put on your seatbelt for an enlightening journey of cultural context and a fresh way to more thoroughly comprehend the kingdom ways of God. Good morning, saints. We are going to begin a new series, um, and we're going to call it, um, this comes from a book called The Blueprint. Uh, it's a book that I wrote um, back in 2016. And the uh, subheading under the title, The Blueprint, is a question whether God's Bible design is linear or is it circular? And oftentimes when I'm explaining to people the, the byline under the title, I'm insert other words for example i'll say is god's bible design greek western linear or jewish middle eastern circular now i didn't have all room (laughs) to put all of that on the cover of the book but that's kind of what we're um, going to be launching today is a study about the origins the cultural background, the cultural context of the Bible itself. Now, just for a little background, um, I am a Catholic kid uh, who was raised uh, 16 years in formal Catholic education. And, um, and then after a brief um, hiatus from God, I returned and... Um, joined the Charismatic Catholic Movement uh, for about a year or two years in uh, my mid-20s, late-20s, and then um, became a Protestant of the uh, Pentecostal persuasion. And um, I have been in the Protestant Reformational Movement um, since 1978. And so... um, So I have had both a Catholic background and a um, reformational, um, dispensational background in the the Protestant movement as well. The last six years, um, going on seven, I have been with um, studying under uh, a Messianic Jewish rabbi. And that term Messianic, many people don't understand what that means. Messianic simply means um, this is a... A person ethnically Jewish 
um, but religiously accepts Jesus Christ, Yeshua HaMashiach, that Yeshua is his name in Hebrew. Ha is the Mashiach, is Messiah, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Christ, as their uh, Messiah slash Savior slash Deliverer, whatever uh, other appropriate titles you want to put in there. And um, But they don't walk away from their um, Jewish origin, Jewish roots, Jewish many times Jewish traditions. And um, so now I've had three backgrounds over um, a uh, virtually my entire life of either formal Catholic parochial school or um, Reformational dispensational Protestantism or, and or the Messianic Jewish uh, flavor. Now people ask me, well, does this mean you're converting to Judaism? And the short answer and the long answer both is no. That's not what I'm there for. Um, I am there. Um, geez, well, Paul, in two of his epistles, especially, well, actually three, but one is the Ephesians chapter 2 and 3, and the next one is Galatians chapter 2 and 3. And then, of course, um, when Paul writes three chapters in Romans, Romans 9, Romans 10, and Romans 11. And he talks about a mystery, a mystery of what is what would it look like if Gentile believers, people of the nations, because that's all Gentile means, it means people of the nations, uh, get together with their Messianic Jewish brothers to form something of uh, what Paul labeled as a mystery in Ephesians chapter 2 and 3 um, uh, as called one new man. Um, the complete Jewish Bible that I also study besides the New King James um, refers to it as one new humanity. And what would happen if the two cultures joined forces? What would that mean um, as to how the enemy would view that? Would the enemy, would the adversary be happy with something like that? And Paul rolls out um, a lot of his epistles are deal with what does this original, basically Jewish movement, uh, I have a shocker for some people here, uh, Jewish movement in the sense that Jesus Christ was Jewish. Uh, interesting, in Matthew 5, 7, he says to um, those who were listening, he says, I haven't come to do away with the law and the prophets. To the contrary, I have come to, to fulfill them. And so Jesus was about as Jewish as he can get when you look at the, uh, his heritage and the lineages that are spelled out in, uh, in the beginning of two of the Gospels. I believe it's uh, Matthew and Luke. And they lay out the lineage of Jesus. And um, believe me, his lineage is um, Jewish. And here's another interesting note. Um, there are, are 66 books in the Bible. Um, it has a total of 40 authors. And at least 39 of the total of the 40 authors, at least 39, were all Jewish. They weren't Gentiles. Now, why is that significant? By the way, let me just mention really quickly who, who is maybe the, the lone Gentile. Um, there's some debate whether the Apostle Luke 
him being a physician was um, Jewish or Gentile. And so, but irrespective of whether it's 40 authors, 40 Jewish authors or 39 Jewish authors, the, the point is the Bible was written by Jews. And why is that important? Well, we need to, whenever we study something that we don't know much about, we, context is everything. And context in its cultural uh, terms, context in its um, language terms, and especially when you go to translate and interpret language from one language to another, context in its heritage terms, context in its historical terms. Context is everything. And so um, I've gone to Bible school, and uh, I have a Bachelor of Theology, and um, I'm an ordained minister in a Protestant Pentecostal uh, denomination. But the whole time I attended um, Bible college, I never heard any discussion about um, the cultural context of the scripture other than to say pretty much, hey, here's this book, the first two-thirds of it, don't spend a lot of time reading that because we've moved on, and so uh, just basically read the last third, um, not exclusively, but but that's the most important part. And that didn't sit well with me because I thought, well, then why, why even have the whole book in its entirety? Um, it didn't make a lot of sense to me. And so... Um, I wrote this book called The Blueprint. I did a, it took me, um, gosh, probably three or four years to write this thing. I did a lot of research in this. And I wanted to see uh, what other authors who may have studied the question of uh, whether um, God's Bible design is, has a Jewish flavor, background um, to it versus what happens when Gentiles come along uh, after the resurrection of Christ, and then um, we have the the uh, Acts chapter one through five church, and after that, where all this tidal wave of Gentile believers start to come in and impact what up to then was exclusively a a, a Jewish a messianic Jewish movement, and of course. Uh, Acts chapter 15 deals with the Jerusalem Council where uh, the leaders at the time of the Jewish movement got together to try to decide what are we going to do with this tsunami of, of new converts, of new um, people who do not have any background in the covenants, the, the Torah, the um, the Mishnah, the Talmud, the, they have no background in any of this Hebrew um, embedded culture, and and up to then, what was the scripture up to that level before we have the epistles of um, of Paul and Peter and John, etc. And so. Um, Acts chapter 15 is an amazing book to study because to see how that problem was dealt with. And interestingly enough, it continues to today. It wasn't totally resolved back then. It's kind of an ongoing, what Paul writes and labels as a mystery. 
and this mystery of one new man bringing Jewish and Jews and Gentiles together uh, to recognize what was Father God's original plan. So I'm going to read to you uh, the foreword, it's very short, of this book, and it kind of describes, I think, the challenge that we have when we enter into an area that kind of rocks our world. And um, But again, we have lots of prophecies about seals of the scrolls coming off in the end times, and so we're going to get new revelation and, and dramatically increased revelation. So let me just read this forward to you. It has a lot of questions in it. And so here we go, forward. This is the forward to the book, The Blueprint. Is God's Bible design linear or is it circular? Okay, here we go. So question, have you ever been out on the open road, oblivious to your surroundings, until you spot a highway sign indicating that your earlier route was exactly the opposite of your intended destination? What do most people do when they discover that they're headed in the wrong direction? Well, they tend to get off the current road, the current path, and then they turn around and they head the opposite way. It has happened to me. You feel the fool and wish to correct your error in the fastest way possible. Deception is an enigmatic experience. For example... If one were to ask us if we were in this moment currently deceived about something, we are often unable to effectively even answer that question since the intrinsic nature of a deceptive belief is that it makes us unable to recognize our duped condition. Our being tricked about an issue usually suggests a lack of of wariness on our part. So not being mindful that we're in the midst of spiritual warfare can cost us dearly. Our struggling against a fallen angelic host requires our full attention and watchful eyes. We need to be able to detect demonic trickery in order to avoid dangerous snares. Our angelic adversary, Lucifer, along with his fallen hordes, employ clever, deceptive tax tactics as such as mixing lies and distorting reality with just enough truth to make us fall. These devices are designed to deter us from our paths of our divine destinies. The stakes are huge and the consequences are eternal. Back in 2005, Christian pollster George Barna sounded a clarion call in his report on the health of the Christian church in America. He explained that there exists a long-term absence of real change on key religious beliefs and behaviors that scream for an about-face and an earth-shaking approach to spiritual growth, spiritual, I'm sorry, spiritual growth. I agree with Barna. The church as we know it has lost its salt and its light. Our Christian witness has been undermined by our acceptance of 
destructive distortions of the original Hebrew-based scriptures. Our enemy has craftily infiltrated God's Hebrew gospel. And I have parenthetically here, the gospel based on its original Hebrew concepts of time and purpose and replaced it with Hellenized or Greek philosophies that have resulted in deadly detours for the church. Platonic, Gnostic, Western perversions unfortunately have crept into the divinely inspired original Hebrew scriptures during the formative years in the Christian church. In addition, Western linear thinking distorted the Hebrew circular cyclical expressions of the divine father's goals. These distortions adhered themselves to the early blueprint fabric of the church, bringing about radical doctrinal confusions. The results? Well, we discredited our, discredited our Hebrew foundations, resulting in them being either downplayed or even ignored entirely. God does not promote two different religions, nor is it only 50% relevant in the scripture. A Bible contains one Hebrew singular revelatory account, both Old Testament and New Testament. It is our, both Jew and Gentile, Father's divine blueprint to restore mankind's relationship with him, Father God, and to reinstall his heavenly kingdom back on earth through his Son, Jesus Christ, or Yeshua HaMashiach. And I cite there Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. You can read that for yourselves, or Psalm 2, 8 through 9. Our Father's divine blueprint laid out in the first two chapters of Genesis, the way it was laid out has never changed and it never will. God finishes that which he begins. No one, not rebellious angels nor rebellious men, has the authority to change Father God's blueprint. For the architect is sovereign. And I cite there Malachi 3, verses 6, which says, For I am the Lord, and I do not change. So, going over to um, chapter 2 in this book, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about what are some of the differences um, between Jewish thought and Greek thought. What brought this on in the first place was I was working as a chaplain for about a decade in the local San Diego County jails. Um, I was a Spanish-speaking chaplain of Sunday evening services, and um, I was unable to finish um, my Sunday night teachings because of frequent interruptions and lockdowns. And um, I asked the Lord, because uh, I was ready to quit. I mean, I'm driving a long distance from North County going all the way down to uh, the border. And I said, look, I can't get these teachings finished. I'm wasting your time and I'm wasting my time. Do you have a way for me to explain the Bible in something akin to five minutes and something that these inmates would take away and it would permanently change them? 
And what I heard was um, you can teach the entire Bible uh, with five words, all beginning with the same letter of the alphabet, the letter R, but you have to teach those five words in a circular fashion. And quite honestly, I did not understand why I had to teach in a, these five words in a circular fashion. And uh, just briefly, um, the five words were um, in Genesis 1, we see our relationship with uh, God um, formed. We are created, and it's formed, and he looks over his creation and declares it to be not just good, but very good. And he put man in charge to rule it and to subdue it and have dominion over it. And then um, our rulership is laid out pretty much in Genesis 2. Father God is um, creating more and more animals. And just to show you the level of trust he had towards Adam, he's bringing the animals over to Adam and says, Adam, you know, what do you want to call this one? What do you want to call that one? And uh, Adam was never overruled um, by Father God. And, um, and then, unfortunately, um, the th- so we have relationship in Chapter 1 of Genesis, rulership, our rulership in Chapter 2 of Genesis. And then everything blows up, unfortunately, um, by the time we hit the third chapter, um, the spiritual rebellion that began in Isaiah uh, 14 and Ezekiel 28 up in, up in the second heavens. Um, got brought down to earth, and unfortunately we know how that story ended. Um, Eve uh, handed her authority over to this um, this serpent who basically implanted doubts um, regarding her relationship between herself and Father God, and to doubts as to his nature, doubt as to his character, doubts as to his, his Bible design, etc. And, of course, she handed her authority, over to him when she believed uh, those suggestions, those uh, untrue suggestions about who God was, and so she disobeyed God, and we well, we're all suffering the results. Um, the fourth uh, letter in that circular um, configuration, again, beginning with the letter R, is the story of the redemption when we, of course, have... Um, covenants resulting in the arrival of the fulfillment as the new covenant, and his name is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. In in Hebrew, it's Yeshua HaMashiach. And then lastly, to close up the circle, the fifth um, word that began with the letter R was all about a return or a restoration of what we originally lost in the garden. We did not lose heaven in the garden. We lost our relationship with our Father. And as such, when we are separated from God, okay, we are no longer basically alive in the sense of having eternal life. And we already had three earlier sessions of this. I'm just hit it very, very uh, lightly here. Eternal life, per John 17, 3, uh, Jesus explains, and he actually says this is eternal life, how he leads into it. And he says that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom he sent. Well, unfortunately, um, that disobedience and that rebellion and that sin um, separated man from a relationship with Father God. And the rest of the story is 
It's all a circular component of these five words. And that's what I was teaching in the jails. I mean, I could do that in five minutes. And if they only, if I only had a brief um, a teaching with them and we got interrupted again by the deputies or the you know, had a security lockdown, they were able to take away a summary of the Bible in five words, but it's in a circular way. So, and the next step is um, my being invited to um, be a visiting um, preacher for the week at a local uh, Baptist church. And, um, and when I was handing off to the uh, liaison all of the PowerPoints, etc., this uh, liaison told me that, that she had just finished a seminar called Hooked on Hebrew. And as I was getting back into my car and she was uh, getting, into, getting into her vehicle, she said, did, she said, Earl, did you know that Jewish th- um, culture, Jewish thought, and Jewish um, viewpoints is all circular? And I had this earlier mandate from God saying, hey, teach these five words to the inmates in the jail in a circular fashion. I didn't understand. Anyway, I literally got out of my car and walked over to the front of her vehicle. And I said, excuse me, could you repeat that? And she said, yeah, we had a female rabbi. And this seminar was called Hooked on Hebrew. And... um, she said everything in Hebrew culture, language, and orientation as to everything is circular and cyclical. And I said, whoa, what is this all about? So um, that, start, that started a journey um, that I wanted to find out um, what are we trying to do if we have a circular Bible written by 39 Jewish authors, how am I supposed to interpret a circular concept by using Greek linear straight line thinking? It didn't make any sense to me. And so that started the journey, and we're going to explore more on the other side of the break what exactly does bringing together Greek and Jewish culture and circular and linear. How does that work? We'll see you on the other side of the break. Well, welcome back. We are engaging in a new road to discover whether the Bible design God Father God's Bible design is a Greek linear uh, model or is it a Hebrew circular model so uh, picking up where we left off uh, from the last segment so I engaged in a research project, and I soon learned that in many instances, uh, Gentiles, and when I use that phrase, by the way, it just means people of the nation. So that just means there are only two groups of people in the Bible, okay? And uh, 
Uh, of course, there's the Jews and uh, all of the covenant history, uh, beginning with Abraham. But and everybody else outside of that um, is considered to be a Gentile. So there, it's, it just means people of the nations. We are uh, goyim, as they say. Okay. So as I began my research, I uh, learned that in many instances, we Gentiles um, try to use a Western Greek linear way of thinking when we are attempting to study a cyclical, circular, experiential Jewish thought. And what's interesting is, don't forget what we talked about in the first segment, at least 39 of the 40 authors of the Bible were Jewish. Our Messiah is Jewish. The prophets in the Old Testament were Jewish. And Paul the Apostle was Jewish. He was uh, from the tribe of Benjamin. He, uh, he was a rabbi, and he studied under the most famous rabbi, Gamaliel. But was it, what was interesting about Paul was that he grew up in a Greek uh, community, a Gentile community, but he was trained in a Jewish culture. And so, honestly, um, as you look at that preparation, he's the perfect man to bring both the truth of the Jewish experience to Sadducees and Pharisees, etc., and also to reach out to Gentiles to say, hey, this story applies to both groups of people. Okay, so... um, does it make sense for we Gentiles to apply a linear way of thinking when the Bible, written by th- at least 39 out of 40, were Jewish, and it may be 40 out of 40 if you, you know, go along with the uh, view that Luke also was Jewish, um, when attempting to study a cyclical, circular um, Jewish thought? As Westerners, we often default to a linear grid to interpret a circular, cyclical Hebrew foundation in the scriptures. So I came up with a question. How do we study Hebrew cyclical circular thought throughout the Bible with Greek linear tools of interpretation without becoming confused? So on the desk where I'm sitting right now, I am looking at a circular, I guess they call this a compass, and it is a circle. And if I were to take, I also have a 12-inch ruler, linear, straight line ruler, and if I were to put down the circle on the desk and somebody um, was not familiar with the geometric outline of what a circle was, and, t- and I wanted to try to explain that to him. And I said, I'll explain to you what a circle is. And the tool that I am going to use to explain to this person who doesn't know geometry, might even be blind, physically blind, let's say. And I'm trying to uh, describe this shape of circle. And then I overlay the circle that's on the desk with a straight line ruler. And I'm going to say, this is how you interpret the circle. Um, that is incongruent. It results in being incoherent, and it just doesn't make any sense. It's, it's not going to work. 
But that's unfortunately what we have been trying to do for the last 1,700 years since the Council of Nicaea, when we basically, as a church, separated ourselves from our Hebrew foundations, our Hebrew roots, and decided to bifurcate this um, work of of divine revelation into two parts, the Old Testament and the New Testament, and basically said, we're only going to basically focus on the new. So I went to Bible school. That's primarily what the focus was, and that's what I learned as a Catholic. That's what I learned as a Protestant, and that's what I learned um, as a minister in training for eight and a half years, part-time, eight and a half years going to school and working at the same time. So it seems like trying to, um, to, to overlay a ruler on top of a circle and then try to explain shape and the configuration and the why and the wherefore of a circle, am I attempting to place a square peg into a round hole? It's illogical. It just doesn't work. So I began to wonder if such a contradictory um, analytical process could explain why there is often confusion and lack of agreement amongst the many Gentile Christian denominations as to the interpretation of our Hebrew-originated scriptures could explain a lot of things. So I'm taking this out of page 12 of this um, the Blueprint book. Um, I am going to quote a man named uh, Brian Knowles, and in essence, he said that As to culture, time, language, and thought, the Bible is a Hebrew construct. It's Jewish in its nature. And context, as I said earlier, is not just um, something. It is everything. It's, It's more than important. For us to be able to understand significance and meaning and intent of the communications of those who were inspired by the Holy Spirit to write this book, um, we have to get into what were they thinking? How were they, you know, what's their culture? What inspires them? Uh, how How did they operate? The Old Testament is written in the Hebrew language by Hebrew authors. And although the New Testament appears in the Greek language, again, virtually all of the New Testament authors were Hebrew, who were Jewish cultural products. They were steeped in ancient uh, Near Eastern or Mid-Eastern philosophy. And Brian Knowles basically wrote, look, the Bible in its original languages is, humanly speaking, a product of the Hebrew mind. I use an example in the book, and I said, if you know, if you wanted to learn um, all about um, Russian language and Russian culture and Russian um, cuisine, et cetera, and you were going to do a six-week sabbatical over to, you know, St. Petersburg, et cetera, and, and uh, you were going to stay in a dormitory and be on a college campus, et cetera, et cetera, and you're going to learn all about their history and um, what makes them tick, and 
their government, etc. And your first day in language class to learn the Russian language so that you can read the Russian books, what would be your reaction if the language instructor um, first day shows up with a bunch of dictionaries and hands out to all the students in the class Japanese dictionaries, Japanese language dictionaries. What would your reaction be if you spent money, <laughs> traveled to this long distance um, to Russia, and um, all of a sudden you're looking at a Japanese dictionary as the book that you're going to uh, dig into the, the culture with? You would probably raise your hand and inquire of the teacher, excuse me, are you sure either that I'm in the right class or that you're in the right class? So uh, there's a professor, uh, Marvin Wilson, that I quoted um, his book entitled Our Father Abraham, the Jewish Roots of Our Christian Faith, uh, explains that the context for all scriptures, now this includes the epistles of um, the Pharisee, Jewish rabbi, apostle Paul, is that of Jewish culture. That's what appears. Uh, Paul teaches, um, I'm sorry, Wilson teaches that if we are to understand the Bible accurately, we must plug into the Hebrew background of the primeval Middle East. He also adds that the theological vocabulary and linguistic idioms behind much of the Greek New Testament are Hebraic to the very core. Now, even the New Testament testifies to Hebraic origins for our Christianity. Um, Paul the Apostle states that Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members of one body. That's You find that in Ephesians 3, chapter 6. In fact, terms in Ephesians chapter 2 and 3 talk about when we become born again with Messiah Jesus, with Jesus uh, our Savior, uh, Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2 that we become not only fellow citizens of um, Israel, now I'm not talking about the country of Israel, don't mix this up with Zionism, um, but I'm talking about the concept of wild branches that Paul writes about in, in Romans um, 11, being grafted onto the olive tree, to, uh, grafted onto Israel. We become members not only of the household of God as family, but we also become citizens of what what we, we call, the. Paul uses these words in Ephesians, the commonwealth, listen to this, the commonwealth of Israel. Well, we know what a commonwealth is. Um, we've had... Uh, the Queen of um, England very recently, uh, Queen Elizabeth, passed away. And what used to be the British Empire is now called, after the empire um, demise, uh, after World War II, we now have what is called the British Commonwealth. So it's a collection of uh, countries together um, who trade with each other, who have special uh, passport rights, who have access um, to... Um, privileges of um, travel, um, economics, um, currency, etc. And 
And so isn't it interesting that Paul uses that phraseology that when we are born again, when we come to know Yeshua, Jesus, as our Lord and Savior and Deliverer, being born again brings us into this different experience. And it's not a ticket to ride to go to heaven. That's not the purpose Jesus came. We've said in the last few weeks the reason he came was so that he could restore our relationship to our Father God. If you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it talks all about reconciliation between children and their father. That's why Jesus came. Father God, through his son Jesus, is going to bring back all of his children. John fourteen six. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, says Jesus. No one gets to the Father but through me. So we have to keep in mind the goals here. So um, Paul explained to the Gentile church at Corinth that the Israelites were actually antecedents to the Corinthians as a, as a Greek church. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he says, our forefathers, our forefathers, plural, okay? And he's writing to a Gentile church in Corinth. But he says, our forefathers, Paul, the apostle, is a Jewish rabbi. And he's saying, our forefathers were all under the cloud, and they all passed through the sea. In other words, saying, well, let me just read this. In the early church, therefore, Jew and Gentile claimed a common, listen, a common spiritual ancestry with the Hebrews of old. Uh, I mentioned here that I totally ascribe to the fact that the scriptures as we know them were divinely inspired, and we see that um, very clearly stated in the epistle that Paul wrote to Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.16. And I appreciate the fact that God originally appointed Jerusalem, not Athens, to be his revelatory agent. And we see that in Isaiah 43.10. We see it again in Isaiah 2.3. But listen to what Brian Knowles, our researcher, said about this Jew and Gentile convergence. He said, um, over time, with the progression of the Christian church history, he said, something unfortunately snatched away God's inventive Hebrew blueprint by which the movement of Jesus, Yeshua, was being constructed and replaced with a non-Hebraic, Hellenistic, Greek-inspired one. And so as a result, what has been built since is at best a caricature of what was originally intended. Brian Knowles ends uh, his article by saying, uh, claiming that in many respects it is contrary and antagonistic to the to the spirit of the original believing community going back to Acts chapter 1, especially in the first um, 10 chapters of, of the book of Acts. So uh, I weighed in at this point saying this Hellenistic linear Western influence unfortunately has had a perverting and devastating effect on the effectiveness of fathers God's original circular Hebraic blueprint witnessed to mankind on the earth. So I broke the chapter down to subsections, and I wanted to kind of take this apart, part by section by section, 
And the first one, uh, we're going to talk about uh, linear Greek philosophy versus um, Hebrew circular philosophy. And I start off by sharing what my legal training was. Um, I'm retired um, administrative law judge, and I was an attorney before that, and I went to law school. And um, the legal training that all um, freshmen take, and it ch- continues throughout your legal education, is called, something called the Socratic method. It comes from the uh, it comes from the philosopher Socrates. And it basically teaches uh, one to be a problem solver by using systematic um, uh, procedures. Uh, Basically, the professors would pose continual questions to students rather than give them answers in order to clarify issues and reveal solutions to these um, technical, complicated legal problems. But But that question and questioning and questioning, in other words, answer um, the inquiries of the students only with another question. And that just was a process called the Socratic method. And uh, it, what it was designed to develop in the law students was a linear, successive logic um, that was to be utilized, both valued and to be expected. Um, and during my tenure in Bible school, uh, which I worked in, like I said, in a part-time basis, um, doing being a husband and a father, and you know, we, I was quite busy. Um, but I was never taught in Bible school how to compare a Jewish cyclical circular nature of Scripture, with, or in other words, of Hebrew thought, um, or how to compare that with a linear consecutive Greek way of analysis and Western thought and thinking. And here we are studying a Jewish book, the Hebrew Bible, and we were taught in Bible school that we were to analyze Hebrew circular thinking with a systematic theology. In fact, um, when you study the Gospels, with the exception of the Gospel of John, it's called systematic theologies, the synoptic Gospels, using a systematic um, process. Well, unfortunately, Western systematic theology attempts to reduce the Hebraic religious truth to statements that must form, this is important, an internally consistent and organized whole. W-H-O-L-E, okay? There's another author that weighed in, Brad Young, who wrote a book called Paul the Jewish Theologian. He described this form of Western um, systematic thinking, this thought process that approached theology in in a systematic straight line by which this is how it works. Each new idea in this straight line supersedes and eliminates the previous thought. Okay? Each, okay? And so it's a continuum. And so you start to, start to picture a straight line. So um, Arthur, author Brad Young added, systematic Western thought with a Jewish way of thinking, okay, 
does not work. It doesn't result in um, congruence and consistency. And so another author, uh, weighed in, a man named Brian Knowles, he, he says, look, in, if, you were, if we're Western in education, we intellectually are Greeks, not Hebrews. Hebrews, Hebrews uh, orient th- themselves with a Middle Eastern thought process. Yet we as Greeks insist on rendering everything. This is per Brian Knowles. We insist on rendering everything into logically consistent thought patterns. And we insist on systemizing all of these thought patterns and organizing them into tight, carefully reasoned theologies. Theologies that cannot live with any inconsistencies or any contradictions. We relentlessly attempt to organize everything into manageable intellectual structures. And we want all questions answered, we want all problems solved, and we want all contradictions resolved. Well, the problem with applying Western systematic thinking while studying uh, circular Hebrew Middle Eastern scripture is that it doesn't reflect on how the Hebrew mind works. The Hebrew mind is what wrote the Bible. Again, we say it, 66 books, 40 authors, at least 39 of whom were all Jewish. So Adam Heschel is a Jewish theologian, and he wrote a book, um, God in Search of Man. And he says that the Western attempts to distill the scriptures down to merely a set of principles or merely a set of ideas would fail based on God's ineffable, ineffable is a $25 word that means uh, unknowable, because uh, that's how the Jews view God, um, on, on an ineffable personal nature of Judaism's interaction with a personal God. Uh, per Heschel, the Bible reveals a God who has a series of interactions with his children personally, and it produces a story of events, not just principles to go by and to live on, but rather experiences that produce a a history, a story. And he goes on, Heschel says, to the Jewish mind, the understanding of God is not achieved by referring in a Greek Western way to the timeless qualities of a supreme being um, or the perfection of that supreme, supreme being, but rather by Sensing the living acts of Father God's concern the, to his dynamic attentiveness to his children. We, this is Heschel again, we speak not of his goodness in general, but of his compassion for the individual man in a particular setting. God's goodness is not some ethereal cosmic force, but rather it's a specific act of compassion, of intervention. And I just will say it, hey, he, he intervenes in our stuff. He intervenes in our life. And it's with particularity. So this is what Heschel ends up with. He says, we do not know it as it is, but rather as it happens to us. 
And so I summarized um, basically uh, Hesh- using Heschel's words, but um, changing it somewhat. Greeks learned in order to understand or comprehend, but Hebrews learned God in order to revere him. That's why they learn, want to learn about God, is to revere him. So we're going to have to wrap things up here. Um, we'll, take it, we'll pick it up um, next week. But enough to say that we're going to talk about in future sessions uh, comparing Greek versus Hebrew concepts of time, uh, philosophies, and Greek versus Hebrew opinions on matter, M-A-T-T-E-R, and explains a lot of the different viewpoints on how to interpret basically a Jewish book, a Hebrew scripture called the Holy Bible. It's going to be an interesting study. I hope you can join us. Um, we're going to have some fun taking this apart and comparing cultures, languages, backgrounds, and see how God is going to bring together one new man in Messiah Jesus. I can't wait to share the rest. God bless you guys. See you next time. Thank you for spending your time with us excavating God's Simple Truth Moments. For more information and resources, visit simpletruthministries.net. That's simpletruthministries.net. To contact Simple Truth Moments, email me at earlsimpletruth at gmail.com. That's earlsimpletruth at gmail.com. So until next time, may God richly reveal His Simple Truth Moments to you. You've been listening to Simple Truth Moments. Join Reverend Earl Clampett for another episode next Sunday at 11 a.m. right here on K-Praise. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.